we have any parents here today? Just a few? Y'all are quite a bunch. We got any parents here today? All right, so listen. I know, because I am one too. Y'all have read your share of fairy tales to your kids. Man, don't you hate fairy tales? Fairy tales are the worst. You know, everything kind of ends up, you know, the, the Prince Charming walks in, and, you know, the damsel in distress, and everything is happily ever after. Man, it doesn't sound like the real world at all. Sometimes, your wife's football team beats the pants off of you. Sometimes, sometimes you drive in wet weather, and you stop in full stopping distance, and you happen to slide into the back of somebody's bumper. That's not happily ever after. That's happily ever after insurance. You have, um, you get sick. Within our congregation, we're, you know, memorializing the death of somebody that we love. That doesn't sound like happily ever after. That sounds like, boy, I've got a sore heart. And the, the problem that we have with fairy stories, we, all, we, we love the fairy tale, fairy stories. We love that ideal. It just doesn't sound at all like real life. People get sick and die. If it, life was a fairy tale, we wouldn't have pharmacists, we wouldn't have doctors. Thank God we wouldn't have dentists. We'd, life would be different. And here's the thing, is we've been journeying through uh, the book of Nehemiah. When we end where we ended last week, which was Nehemiah 13, uh, verse 3, it sounded like a fairy tale story. Uh, everything that Nehemiah had put his hand to do had been successful. The wall had been built really in an incredible period of time, 52 days. They had completed this massive construction project. Um, <clears throat> the worship in Jerusalem was renewed. And so the, the temple was uh, sat kind of derelict for decades, and now they've gotten temple worship happening again. The family unit had been renewed. Pride had been brought back. And so if we would stop at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 3, it would sound a little bit like a fairy tale. And they lived happily ever after. Here's the problem. There's about 26 more verses at the end of Nehemiah 13, and we can't stop in verse 3. And so we'll find something out here that's really interesting. Whenever God is at work, and we've seen God at work, you've seen God at work, whenever God is at work, what can you rest assured of? That the devil's at work as well. And he's not going to stop. You may get tired and give up. He's not going to get tired. He's not going to give up. And so where God works, Satan works more to pervert God's work and to make it accomplish as little long-term effect as possible. If he can get you to walk with God for six months and then forget about it, that's a win in his book. I'll take six months of him following God if I can get 35 of him never looking back over his shoulder and doing anything for God ever again. I'll take temporary religiosity if I can have eternal damnation. So he does all kinds of things to corrupt Christians' belief and behavior because he's so opposed to God that he wants to work among the people who are called by his name to drive them into a ditch. Either um, legalism, where we make all kinds of rules that aren't in Scripture and we look down our nose at people who don't keep our rules, or antinomianism, a lawlessness that says, you know, I'm freeing Christ to do whatever I want. Or, you know, maybe he makes you a fanatic, somebody who does really weird things with snakes and worship services that you shouldn't do. And, you know, you become one of those fanatics or you become a 
cynic and you go, oh, none of that stuff is of God. If Satan can drive you into either ditch on either side of the road and mess up your belief or behavior, he will. Here's the thing that really bites. He has an accomplice. Do you know that? Satan like has, he's got, a, he's got an inside guy called your heart that betrays you and helps you be unfaithful to God. And we don't think about being faithful to our opponent, but that's exactly what happens. And so this morning, we're going to finish up the book of Nehemiah. We've been journeying through Nehemiah for, oh, the better part of two months now. And we're going to finish up Nehemiah 13, verses 4 through 30. Um, That's page 353 in the uh, Black Pew Bibles right in front of you. Um, If you're um, following along with your digital device, you can log into our Wi-Fi network. You'll see that at the bottom of the sermon outline, and you can follow along with us as well. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we talked about last week that there's this religious revival where the people are committing themselves to be obedient to everything that God wants them to do. And they say, man, if God said it, that settles it. We're going to obey. And it says in chapter 13, 1 through 3, hey, listen, Israelites, you need to be careful about having non-Jewish people in the city because they will bring their false gods with them. And eventually, it might not happen right away, but eventually they will pull you down. So they say, all right. We've got a new foreign policy program. No Ammonites, Moabites, anybody that's foreign has to be outside of the city. You can live close to the city, but you're not going to live in the city because this city belongs to God. So it sounds ideal. Walls up, temples up, families renewed. But then we find something that between chapter 13, verse 3, and chapter 13, verse 4, that Nehemiah takes a little sabbatical. And one of the things that we know about Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a Jew who had been captured when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. And uh, Nehemiah worked his way up through the ranks, really as a slave, to be the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. And so uh, Nehemiah felt this burden when he heard about Jerusalem's destruction to go. He had asked Artaxerxes for permission, and Artaxerxes had allowed his cupbearer to go to Jerusalem on loan as the governor. But sometime between uh, verse 3 and verse 4, Artaxerxes calls for Nehemiah to come back. Now, we don't know. Uh, We know that Nehemiah had served as governor of Jerusalem for about 12 years before we know for certain that he went back here. We don't know if he had to report in to um, Artaxerxes before. You know, there's no fax machines. There's no telegraph. There's no cell phone. I know young people, some of you going, no cell phone. You know, there's no candy crush now. What in the world? How did they communicate? Well, they communicated face-to-face. And with a thousand-mile distance at about a 20-mile distance, a day pace on foot, it would take about 60 days to travel from Jerusalem to the capital city of Susa. <clears throat> so we don't know if he's gone before, but we do know that he goes now. And we don't know how long he was gone. Most Bible scholars assume that Nehemiah was called back to the capital for three to four years. Some say a decade or more. But eventually, Nehemiah comes back for a second term as governor. <clears throat> Excuse me. He returns for a second uh, stint as governor. And when he comes back to the city where his heart is, guess what he finds? Every single thing he had done had been overturned. It had been undone. And he was right back at square one. Some things never change. You ever work really hard on something? And then you walk in and you find out that big, huge Lego set you've been working on for your kids... Your dog is destroyed. That was my whole Saturday. I was building a castle. 
And it might not be something as trivial as doing something fun with your kids. It could be something a lot more significant, like your job gets rearranged. And there you've been working on this project for months, and your employer assigns you to a different task, and you go, what have I been doing? Spinning my wheels. And so we find a really important principle. While Nehemiah had brought about this tremendous revival in reformation of conduct, uh, people can't live on the mountaintop of revival any more than you can make a steady diet of candy. Sorry, Kylie. It's just not possible. A diet of candy is not wise for a parent to give your kid because it's not going to make you healthy. And in the same way, the mountaintop of revival in Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12 is not where you live. You live in the valley. You go up to the mountain. And God's desire is more than just for you to be happy and um, pleased with your circumstances. To, to in, it's more than just you enjoying these times of refreshment. God wants to make you tough, and he wants to make you faithful. And that means sometimes you have to come off the mountain and get back down into the valley because that's what produces maturity. So Nehemiah comes back. He's back at square one. What is he going to do? That's our story this morning. So look with me, beginning in, cha- in uh, chapter 13, verse 4. The very first project that we see when Nehemiah comes back, he realizes that God's people have willingly trashed the temple. They've trashed it. How? Well, listen to what God's word says in verses 4 through 9. Now, before this, Elijah the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. This is not your garage. This is a storehouse in the temple. Eliashib, listen to this, was a relative of Tobiah. Do you guys recognize that name? Tobiah, chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, enemy of God's people, is now, when Nehemiah returns, related to the high priest family by marriage. So Elijah, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tents of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, along with the contributions of the priests. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified and I had the articles of the house of God restored there along with the grain offerings and the frankincense. All right, so what's the story here? Eliashib, high priest now related by marriage to Tobiah, the enemy of God. And here's the connection. It it becomes a little kind of dicey to try to put together the chronology, but it becomes very clear in verse 6. Nehemiah is not there while all this is going on. And so uh, at the end of chapter 3, at the end of verse 3 in Nehemiah 13, they make a decision to exclude all the Ammonites and the Moabites. So what is the connection between verse 3 and verse 4? Tobiah is an Ammonite official, and now he is renting out a room in the temple. So something has happened between the commitment of verse 3, let's get all the foreigners out because we don't want them to bring their gods and pollute our worship, to now this dude is living in the church. And it's Tobiah. We thought this guy was long gone. Nope, like a bad penny, he shows up again. He tells us that he was gone in verse 6 and 7, and there's that old adage, when the cat's away, 
the mouse will play. So Nehemiah comes back and it says he's enraged. He's really upset that things have gotten to this, this situation. So he's the governor. He has authority. He could probably say, all right, uh, deacons, we're going to have a meeting here after church and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna move some furniture. But it sounds like Nehemiah, old man that he is, maybe in his 60s, it sounds like he starts chunking furniture out the window all by himself. He has the ability to get a committee. He says, you know what? I was greatly displeased and threw out all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I mean, you can almost see it. It's almost cartoon-like. You, you see the temple and you just see stuff flying out the door and Tobiah's going, what is going on? And his stuff is just ending up in a pile in the front yard. Uh, Nehemiah is going to take care of business. Now, it says that Tobiah was living uh, where in the temple? He was in a, what's the Bible say? A storeroom, singular. Storeroom, singular. Verse 9, I ordered that the rooms, plural, be purified. Nehemiah saw what Eliashib had allowed to happen is so desecrating and defiling that while he only occupied one room, the entire temple needed to be repurified. Because this guy was not a worshiper of God. And so the word for purify is catharizo. It's where we get the word cauterize. You know, you burn something and you purify it and you, you clot it up. He wanted to stop the bleeding. He wanted to cleanse it, to cauterize it, to purify it. I guess you could say that Tobiah had a really serious case of the cooties. And Nehemiah was going to take care of it. He was going to clean it all out. And here's the thing that I love about Nehemiah. Um, <clears throat> this is probably not the strongest point of Nehemiah's life. He's probably a little older, probably his first governorship. He was in the prime of life. This is probably, um, you know, 30 years later from what we originally saw, maybe 20 years later. So he's, he's a little bit older, doesn't have the vim and the vigor and the strength that he had. But this is the first time in Nehemiah where he actually comes face to face with Tobiah. Remember, Tobiah wrote letters, and he had mocking speeches that he gave, but they never meet each other face to face. I just have to believe while Nehemiah is chunking his furniture that they kind of like ran into each other. And they, they finally get eyeball to eyeball, and Nehemiah is flat out fearless. He says, get out, go. And so at this point, it's not an overstatement. You know, Nehemiah, 11 and 12, high point of his career. It's the, it's the revival, it's reformation, it's all kinds of good things. And he comes back and it's like Eliashib, the high priest, has been leading like an anti-revival. And it's not inappropriate for us to lay at all at Eliashib's feet because there's an important point. <clears throat> any attempt that any organization, church, or family is ever going to make to glorify God long-term requires consistent leadership. It requires consistent leadership. I mean, we just saw the minute Nehemiah leaves, we don't know how quickly Tobiah moves in. We're going to get into that here a little bit more because there's more to the story. But they just, they stopped to think that worship was important. They stopped to think that um, their identity as worshipers of Yahweh was important. And so a couple things about consistent leadership. It must be vigilant. It must be vigilant. You don't ever fix anything once and for all, Okay. Men, how many of you have a honeydew list? How many of you have had something show back up on that honeydew list that you thought was fixed six months ago? I am not the only one. Don't you dare lie in church and not raise your hand. You don't fix anything once and for all. There's always something to do. And the Bible says additionally, we've always got to be on the lookout because while we may go, hey, coast is clear, let's party, let's have it easy, that's not the devil's mode of operation. 
it says he is prowling around like a lion seeking whom he can devour. So for us to not be vigilant, it's our own fault when bad things happen. We have to be vigilant if we're going to provide the kind of consistent leadership we need to provide in our churches and in our families. Consistent leadership must be principled. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the thing that is disturbing. Um, I don't think um, many of you, if somebody came up and was espousing false doctrine, that you would agree. You would say, hey, something probably doesn't sound right. But practically speaking, we divorce the Bible from like real life, and we make all of our practical decisions without any biblical principles attached to it. And so, in, in effect, we live, Sunday we go to church, but then the rest of the week we live like practical atheists. Do you know, I think that there are biblical principles that, that uh, while God may never say to you, thus saith the Lord, you know, Jeff Osborne, here's where you're supposed to work, you know. Um, it, that's not going to happen, you know. Um, Josh Hatcher, here's what you're going to do with your life. There are biblical principles that will tell you what you should do for a career. I think there's biblical principles that tell you where you should live. I think there are biblical principles that tell you who you should marry. There are biblical principles that tell you how you should parent. And yet we approach all these things like God doesn't even exist. I get to pick where I live. I get to pick who I marry. I get to pick what I do. And I'm going to raise, nobody's going to tell me how to raise my kids. And we have to be principled. There may be things that come up that you can't find a chapter and verse to address. But you know what? If the Bible claims for itself that it has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, there will be a principle for any situation that you can find to apply to your life. The question you have to ask yourself, are you living more consistently biblical? Or are you living whatever way you want to live and you just hope that it pleases God? One of those ways is wise. One is not. Be so principled that even your most pragmatic decisions are made based upon the principles found in the Word of God. And last certainly not least, consistent leadership is godly. If 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, do it for the glory of God, then everything else we do is important too. If things as menial as eating and drinking can be done to God's glory, then let's lead for God's glory in our churches and in our families. Well, the problem doesn't stop there. It's not just Tobiah, his, his old enemy, his arch nemesis is living in the temple. And it's not just Eliashib, though we've kind of said you know, his leadership was suspect. The people were unfaithful too. So in uh, chapter 13, verses 10 through 22, Nehemiah tries to put the wow back into worship. Worship had completely fallen off the shelf. They didn't even care about it. And Nehemiah says, we have the opportunity to worship God. Let's put the wow back into worship. And the first way that he does that is by encouraging people not to trash the temple, but to treasure the temple. Look at verses 10 through 14. <clears throat> I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to their own fields. Therefore, I rebuked the officials, saying, Why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together, and I stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain and the new wine and the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites, with Hanan, son of Zachor, son of Mataniah, to assist them because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. He encourages people to treasure the temple. Here's the story. Where's Tobiah living? In the temple. Where in the temple? 
in a storehouse. Why in the world can he be living in a storehouse? Because the people just forgot to give. And so now it's a very pragmatic decision. Hey, listen, maybe we can rent that room out and at least make a little bit of money to support the temple because our people sure aren't. So let's make a pragmatic decision. This is really wise. And it doesn't matter that he's a pagan idolater. Let's just do something. Why is the storeroom empty? Because it's not just that Elijah failed as a leader. It's that the people failed in their faithfulness. Everyone, high priest, should have done a better job encouraging. The Levites, who are kind of the middlemen, should say, uh, our storehouses are getting empty. Um, we need a little help here. The people should care enough about giving. And here's what happened. It, I don't know how exactly it happened because I don't have a time machine. I can't go back there. But evidently, there was one day that Elijah forgot to pass the plate on Sabbath day. And you know, here's the problem. Like, you didn't bring cash. I guess you could have brought some shekels or something like that, some denarii. But they, they, you don't put money in the plate. What did you bring? What did you bring? As you're offering, you brought grain, you brought wheat, you brought a jug of wine, you brought a goat or a cow, and all of a sudden he forgets to like pass the plate and like you put your cow behind you. You're like, I get to keep this cow. He didn't, they didn't, they didn't have an offering today. Man, that's awesome. I'm gonna get, I got 152nd of a, my, my herd back today. Because if he didn't say, I ain't gonna pay. And they stopped. And then what happened once, happened twice, happened three times, and now nobody is giving. And here's, here's the thing. You have no, cl- no clue. I have no clue. You have no clue how your personal, private disobedience affects everybody. Just pay attention to this. The people stopped giving. Who is really kind of dependent upon people's givings? The Levites. So when the Levites had no food to eat, you know what they did? They went back to their ancestral lands, to their, their kind of inherited towns, and they went back to farming when they should have been priesting. And so because the people didn't feed the Levites physically, the Levites leave Jerusalem and they don't feed the people spiritually. And worship is done, deader than a doornail. Because everybody, high priest, Levites, and people, have just stopped being faithful. They made all these commitments in chapter 12. Oh yeah, we're going to do everything, we're going to do everything, we're going to obey all the way. But fine words at the end of the day feed nobody. And so it doesn't matter what commitments you make with your lips. It's the commitments you make with your life that are most important. In verses 15 through 22, Nehemiah sought not only to treasure the temple by filling up its storehouses, but he sought to keep the Sabbath special. You maybe have, uh, in your extensive travels around the world, have maybe seen um, these bumper stickers or these t-shirts or these wall clings that say, keep Austin, weird. Keep Charlotte, weird. And it's a thing about small businesses. Let's not have, you know, Walmart come in. Let's not have these big companies, Costco. Let's have mom and pop. Let's keep it weird. Let's keep it not franchise giants. Let's keep it, let's keep it grassroots. Well, if Nehemiah could like have like a camel sticker, you know, or whatever. I don't even know where you put the camel sticker. I'll let you guys figure that out. Where's the bumper on a camel? Um, if he could have a camel sticker, it would be keep the Sabbath special. It wouldn't be keep Jerusalem weird. It would be keep the Sabbath special. Because in verses 15 through 22, here's what he sees. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. We know what they were doing. Uh, They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise. 
And they were selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. So I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So when the shadows began to fall on the gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the gates be closed and not opened until after the Sabbath. And I posted some of my men at the gates so that no goods can enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. And after that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion in keeping with your abundant and faithful love. They had violated the temple by not providing for its services. They were violating the Sabbath. Everything related to their worship was well below specified standard. And it's not only leadership that we need, because any attempt that we're going to make in any institution, whether it's our church or whether it's our family, to attempt to glorify God long-term requires consistent obedience by all of God's people. It is not just the leadership that is to blame. It is everyone, the Levites, the people. And here's what I love. When Nehemiah sees unfaithfulness, what does he do? When Nehemiah sees unfaithfulness, what does he do? He confronts. He is absolutely fearless. So it doesn't matter whether you're his Ammonite enemy or a Jewish noble. He is in your face. And he's saying, what are you doing? He said, Tobiah, you don't have any reason to be here. This is Jerusalem. God's holy city. Get out. But then he goes to people and says, guys, listen, we disobeyed God once before, and that's why our city has been destroyed. And do you think it is such a light thing to not take God seriously? So he's fearless. He is going to do what is right every time. He's willing to confront people, even if that means he's a little bit unpopular. And guys, let me just tell you, being unpopular is not the chief most sin. Nehemiah thought that faithfulness was more important than niceness. And our culture needs to hear that word. Here's the deal, man. Obedience is not obedience if you don't continue to obey. If your obedience is a history lesson, well, God bless you 20 years ago, but what have you done in the last six weeks? Obedience is not obedience if you do not continue. It can't simply be a history lesson. And so, friends, let me just say this just very practically, okay, because I know that this is hard. If you see someone from our faith family doing something that the Bible says that they should not do, the very first thing you should do is uh, pick up your phone and call your deacon. Right? No, no, uh, better yet, call the pastor. You know, because he'll, he'll deal with, you know, 400 people's problems. No. Now, now you need to come to the office too because now you're gossiping when the truth is if you would go to that person and confront them about their sin. I just have to ask the question. If, if, if you're clear on what the Bible teaches and you're clear that they're not doing it, how much do you have to hate them to not go talk to them about it? Because the Bible says that discipline is what we do when we love people. One of the things I love, I don't like disciplining my kids, but I have four of them, so sometimes it's a full-time job. But they will always say when we get done, Daddy, I know that you did it because you love me. The heart of the issue is there. They may not like the discipline, but they know that the discipline is there because I love them. And I, I can't have them talking back to mom because if they talk back to mom, 
then I'm going to talk back to people who aren't moms until it begins at home. And if I want them to talk to their teachers and their Sunday school teachers and their GA leaders respectfully, they need to speak to mom respectfully and know that they're not going to get away just because dad wasn't physically there. Discipline is an act of love. And we've turned it into a four-letter word. I don't know how you do that. But we've turned it into a four-letter word. And so here's the thing. What happens when Nehemiah confronts? You know, he gets voted out of office. Everybody hates him. You know, everybody's clicking the dislike button on Facebook. No! Immediately, the Sabbath is kept. Immediately, the tithes come in. Because Nehemiah was a principled man of leadership. And he held people accountable for their obedience. So at this point, we've got to feel a little something for Nehemiah. Here, this has been the guy's life work, and he comes back and everything is undone. We're like, man, poor Nehemiah. What in the world? He was extraordinarily effective in the first term, but in the second term, he is back to square one. And we go, man, isn't that frustrating? Isn't that frustrating? I think Nehemiah was frustrated, but I think there was, a, there was an emotion that he felt even stronger than frustration. It was this. If the mission really is indeed worthy, then it's worth doing twice. If the mission was only worth one round of him leading, then he comes back and he sees it and he goes, guys, I'm out. Y'all have it to yourself. Take care of your own business. I'm done. But if the mission is truly important, instead of throwing his hands up and being done with it, he rolls up his sleeve. Because this is what God wants us to do. And y'all may not know it, but this is what God wants us to do. And you're not being obedient. But you know what? I'm going to be obedient whether nobody else is or not. And I'm going to try to make everybody else be obedient as much as I can. So pass me a Red Bull and let's get going. Let's, let's get going because it's not done yet. I mean, there's still more to the chapter. And so he's not done because in 23 through 28, all of these commitments they made about the temple, about the Sabbath, about the tithe, and about marriage had come undone. So in verses 23 through 28, Nehemiah starts to make marriage meaningful. Again, <clears throat> verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. So I rebuked them. I cursed them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. We're not, um, yeah, we're not doing that part. And just so you know, it was like a sign of shame to like rip the hair out of someone's beard or to ceremonially shave their head. And so he was not saying like, He was on their back, they're on the ground, and he's ripping all their hair out. It was a ceremonial thing. And so I beat them, I pulled out their hair, and I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or for yourselves. And then listen to the historical argument that he makes. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, had become a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. You recognize that name? So I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. 
I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, <clears throat> with favor. It seems pretty clear at this point that uh, the Israelites had backed out of every single one of the commitments that they had made to the temple, to the Sabbath, to their families. And Nehemiah has had to go back and rebuild the meta metaphorical walls of religious virtue. And here's, here's the thing that I think is interesting. They had completely forgotten their identity in worship. And there are two things that are really important for you. to when, when you come to worship, there are two really important things that should happen for you. The first is that you should focus on who God is. When, when we sing his praise, we sing his praise because he's worthy of it. He is God, and to worship anything else is idolatry. You may not bow down to, you know, idols made of wood and stone, but you bow down to something. You just might not know what it is. You bow down to your job. You bow down to prestige. You bow down to power. You bow down to fame. You bow down to your pocketbook. But you have a God. It's just a matter of whether you know it or not. <clears throat> Here's the thing that I think is interesting, and this is a point that I think is really important for us, is we seek to build strong families. <clears throat> when, when worship identity falls, when we stop thinking about God, not only do we think bad thoughts about God, we think too highly of ourselves. Because the other thing that should happen in worship, we should think about God and we should realize where we fit in the pecking order of the universe. Namely, we are not God. And so worship helps us know who God is and it helps us to know who we are. And when worship identity declines, guess what happens? You get to decide who you marry. Instead of God's word having a regulating effect in your life, so as worship identity, understanding who we are as God's people, <clears throat> as that declines, idolatry rises. And I will tell you, because you all have friends, some of you have people that you used to go to church with that don't go to church anymore. I can guarantee you there is nothing good religiously that is happening in their life. I don't say that to be mean-spirited. I'm just saying, they're not being reminded of who God is which means they're not thinking appropriately about who they are, which means that they're making decisions that are not in line with God's word. And they might be able to hide it, but it is inevitable. If, if, if the priority of worship is not a priority for you, then you are the center of your own universe because you're disobeying one of God's primary commands to worship him. If you're not worshiping him, you're worshiping yourself. And you're not worthy of it. You didn't create you, and you're not going to judge you as much as you might think that you want to. You didn't create you, and you're not going to judge you. And so he knows that there is a connection between what we do religiously and what we do in our families. And when, when uh, worship fails, then so do our families. This is not, in case you mistake it, this is not a racial or an ethnic issue at all. It is a theological issue. And he goes back to Solomon. And says, when Solomon married all these different women, they brought their pagan gods with them. And so now Solomon went from a um, focused heart to a divided heart. It was focused on Yahweh to now it's all over the place. And this is all about worship. The kids can't even speak Hebrew. So when they show up for Sabbath school, they don't even know how to follow along with a lesson. They don't speak the language. It's like going to a worship service that is like in a foreign language because it is. They know all the languages of these pagan peoples, but they cannot participate in the worship of God. And he just says, guys, listen, this is what got us into trouble in the first place. You want to do this again? Here's the thing, man, is scares me to death. Is that a single generation's compromise can undo centuries worth of faithfulness. Do you realize that? 
the Christian church is never more than one generation away from extinction. Right now, if everybody turns away from God, there's no church for your grandkids. There's none. Now, that ain't going to happen. God is faithful to always preserve a remnant. But aren't we in our culture right now seeing a world that has gone mad related to the whole issue of family? Guys, we're the only people on the planet that actually know what family is. And yet we're being painted into a corner where even if we say it as graciously and loving as possible, it's still hate speech. It's a mess. So Nehemiah confronts. And again, you see Eliashib. Man, listen, I don't know how he got to be the high priest, but they need to have like a revote. Because not only was he, married, was he connected to Tobiah by intermarriage, but it says that his grandson married one of Sanballat's kids. So now the two arch enemies of Israel, the high priest is connected through intermarriage with. Who you marry is a big deal. There are people that I have seen have been faithful to God. They get married and they never come to church again. Now listen, I just can't assume that things are good for you if you're not doing something that God has commanded. And so he takes care of business. Ezra had come, oh, maybe a decade or two before Nehemiah. And when he saw all the intermarriage, Ezra had a big church service and it was a mass divorce. Because if you're married to a foreign lady, we're having a divorce service next Sunday. You show up and all the foreign women are excluded. Nehemiah didn't do that. Nehemiah settled for a little gentler thing which you would call a non-recurrence and non-proliferation policy. He said, you may not give your sons or their do- take their daughters, and you can't take them for yourself. It's done. We're done right here. And so he sought to make marriage meaningful again. And here's the point, the principle. Friends, in our day and age, there is perhaps nowhere more important for us to seek to glorify God long-term than in our families our families listen as a church we might have you for three hours a week you know what by some standards that's that's probably over the top people who are over 60 they'll come to church 12 15 hours a week 50 and under if we can get you three hours a week we're lucky your family has you 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year at least for 18 years where's the best place for us to make our investment in church programming when discipling moms and dads who are going to pass it on to their kids. Guys, some of the best evangelism you may ever be able to do is what you do with your own kids. You've got to start at home. And so the, there's perhaps no place more important for us to seek to glorify God long-term than in our families. And as we've talked about Nehemiah, there's perhaps no place more desperately in need of leadership and obedience. We saw how important that was for the city of Jerusalem. Man, that's important for our families because worldliness will always be a snare. And the truth is, if you cease to be vigilant, if you stop to look out, you know what that means? It means you're already in the world's grip. And the only thing that you can expect is a continued laziness, a continuous weakening until you stop neglecting your responsibility to be vigilant. To keep your nose in the book and keep your eye on the horizon for what's, what's coming. So this is how the book of Nehemiah ends. How many of you would like to go back to like 13.3 and end right there? And they lived happily ever after. Kind of sounds like Nehemiah ends a little bit on a sour note. Don't you remember something? And this is huge. Nehemiah, chronologically, is the very last book of the Old Testament. And did you hear the note today that it ended on? Oh, yes, we will obey. We'll be glad to worship. 
We're going we're gonna to give to support the temple. We're going to support the Levites. Our families will be pure. And then the minute Nehemiah leaves, boom, they're done. If there's anything that Nehemiah chapter 13 teaches us, it's that you're never, you're never done being faithful. But even more important than that, it teaches us that no matter how much you protest, that you will be faithful. We already know the most important thing about every single one of us here. You won't. You won't be faithful. You will not obey God's covenant. It is not in your constitution or your nature to be able to do that. Because every single one of us needs a man to stand in our place to perfectly obey God, to pay the penalty for our sin that we, we, our pockets are not deep enough to pay. And Nehemiah concludes the Old Testament with an exclamation mark. Yes, you're unfaithful. But there is one who is coming who will be faithful, who will always obey God perfectly. He is coming. Because in the midst of the greatest revival that we can manufacture as humans, it has fallen flat on its face because the people that make up that covenant are us. And so, Nehemiah, instead of getting frustrated and throwing up his hands and walking away, rolls up his sleeves because his mission is worth it. And he could only see dimly what was going to come 400 years down the road. We have the opportunity to look back with certainty at what has happened, that Jesus has come, that he did die, that he did rise again. And so no matter how many victories or defeats that we have in our mission to be faithful to God, we will persevere because that man who has come is worthy of our worship. That man who has come is worthy for us to be involved in a Bible study where we learn who he is and how to obey him better. He's worthy for us to invest not just our money, but everything that we have about ourselves. He's worthy of our study. He's worthy of our worship. And he is the only one that can help us to build a strong family the way that we want to. You can't build your family to be strong. You might be able to get everyone to show up at the next family reunion, but you are powerless to get your kids to obey Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. And the temptation for us is to go, oh, what a small vision. What, what, a, what, you know, building strong families, you know, will rescue one or two from the fire. Don't, don't ever despise what God does. Because the nation of Judah at this time was a nation that was maybe 15 by 20 miles long. Maybe 150,000 people. And we've already seen they, they, they got real fired up in the worship service, but down the road they're completely disobedient. But God, through Nehemiah's leadership, was preserving a remnant of people that would be faithful. God doesn't work necessarily in the, the crowds of millions and millions. He, walks, he works in that still small voice of one dad taking the ability to lead his family well. One mom sincerely committed to being submissive to the lordship of Jesus Christ. A family that is committed to the Bible being the thing that informs and guides and directs and establishes all the principles of their family. And so don't despise the small things that God does because over generations they become mighty. Nehemiah concludes, and we'll conclude with this. Sometimes the very best things that you do, sometimes the hardest labor that you work, that you've done for the public, goes uh, forgotten and unnoticed. You know, we have people that are public servants, and just a a week or two ago, you know, you had uh, International and National Thank-A-Cop Day. You know why we have to have Thank-A-Cop Day? Because they usually don't get thanked. So we have to have one day where we say thank you when we should be saying thank you all the time. Sometimes the things that you do for the public are, un, are, are, are forgotten and unnoticed. So did you notice how Nehemiah closes his book? He 
says, these people that I am doing everything I can to help, they don't care. So he closes his book with this prayer, remember me, my God, with favor. He closes his book by referring himself to God to recompense him for his labors. Because he knows what he gets from the people that he's leading might be a big fat zero. But work that he does for God and for his glory, it'll be paid. So here's the thing. Those fairy tale stories, they stink. They don't correspond to real life. And Nehemiah concludes, not with the they lived happily ever after. He says, we will live happily ever after. It's just not yet. We're still under the curse of the apple that's made us sleepy. Nehemiah is still waiting for his prince charming when we know that the prince, the king, the son of God, has come. And he's offered new life to anyone who will submit to him and make him the king of their lives. And so today, as we conclude our story, talking about our mission and our vision to build strong families, will you join us? Will you be committed to the things that God wants you to be committed to? Prayer to me, please. God, our love is far too weak. We can talk about loving you and in the, name, in the next sentence talk about loving pizza or loving the Carolina Panthers, or loving the Gamecocks, or loving Clemson. God, it's blasphemous for us to use the same word in those two sentences. What we talk about when we talk about you, we just can't cheapen it. And yet, God, we know that our chief problem is that we don't, we don't love you, not as we should. We love you far too weakly. And yet you have been so preeminently worthy of our love. You have been so kind and gracious to us by offering your son for the forgiveness of our sins. You have been so truthful with us in telling us that there is nothing that we can do, but it's by your might, not by ours, that our houses are built upon your word. God, we, we've neglected your word and put it on a shelf, and we might even not know where it's at until Sunday morning rolls around. And then we've got to dig out all the laundry and find our Bible buried at the bottom. God, we need your help to help us to build strong families. Help us to be committed, uh, not just to building a strong biological family, but a strong faith family. Today, as we've uh, watched Wayne be fully incorporated into our faith family, God, we give you great thanks because we know that even if we choose to not obey, that you will be faithful to your promise and you will build your church by whoever will allow you to work through them. So God, let it be me. Let it be us. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.